You know, what's interesting about being a college professor is I'm getting young people at a time of their lives where they're, I get them later. So they're graduating. So now they're scared. It's like, I'm going to be leaving the bubble and I'm going to have to pay back my student loans and I'm going to have to get a job and I'm not going to be able to drink every Thursday night through Sunday. And, you know, and they come in as kids who are going to start becoming adults. And now they're sort of almost young adults and they face different kinds of challenges and they have a different relationship with their parents because they're trying to, as much as they love and are close to them, break from them because that's what college is also about. It's about creating that, that really independent being. You're listening to the MILF Podcast. This is the show where we talk about motherhood and sexuality with amazing women with fascinating stories to share on the joys of being a MILF. Now here's your host, the milfiest milf I know, Jennifer Tracy. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for listening. This is MILF Podcast, the show where we talk about motherhood, entrepreneurship, sexuality, and everything in between. My name is Jennifer Tracy and I'm your host. Hi. Oh my gosh, so many exciting things. The first thing I want to start with is my first live show is happening this summer, you guys. Oh my gosh, uh, I'm so excited. So we have a venue Dynasty Typewriter, a beautiful theater in Los Angeles on Wilshire Boulevard. And it is going to be Wednesday, July 24th at 8 p.m. at the Dynasty Typewriter. Tickets are on sale now. You can go to dynastytypewriter.com and buy them there. They're also available um, on Facebook. It's an event on Facebook, so you can purchase it through there. It'll go go to the same link, but um, whatever's easy for you. So I really hope to see you there. It's going to be an amazing event. I'm going to have, there will be pole dancing. (laughs) There will be merch. There will be several MILFs on stage talking about sex after kids and just plain old sex. Uh, It's going to be a really fun night. So please come and join us. And we'll be recording that and it'll be a podcast episode later after, obviously after the event. So yay, super excited about that. And just wanted to remind you of the give for this month is Save the Children. Uh, You can read more about them on my website or on their websites, savethechildren.org. And every time you write an iTunes review for MILF podcast, I will donate $25 to that organization for the month of May. I had to stop and think, what month are we in? (laughs) because it's all going so fast. I can't believe it. It's going to be my birthday soon, you guys. I'm going to be 44. That feels like a kind of a magical number, two fours, for some reason. I think that's it. I'm just so excited about everything right now. I'm feeling really good, excited about spring. Oh, I am going to be, or it's already launched, enrollment's open for my writing course, which starts June 17th. It's a six-week writing course that gets you from the seed of your idea to an outline. So my job is to kind of get you on the road to writing it and getting a draft out there because, man, those roadblocks want to stop us. I don't believe in, in writer's block, but I do believe that we have things that prevent us from just taking the action. And that's in all areas of our lives, not just writing. If you're interested in that, you can check it out on my website, jennifertracy.com, sign up. Without further ado, I would like to introduce this week's guest, Helen Rothberg. Helen came to me through our amazing show notes writer, Kevin and Hunker, Kevin Hunker. And Helen told me they called him Hunker. It's like, that's his nickname. I'm like, of course it is. If that's your last name, like that's the coolest nickname ever. 
Uh, Kevin came to me many months ago and said, I think my professor from college would be amazing on your show. And I said, great. And then he hooked us up. And after one phone call, I said, I want to elope with Helen. I'm completely in love with her. And we were friends. She's an author. She's a professor. She has a gazillion degrees and a PhD. <laughs> Literally. I mean, she's like so uh, over the top educated and badass and funny and warm. And her story and her journey to motherhood is even more fascinating. I really hope you enjoy my conversation with Helen. Uh, thanks so much for tuning in. Hi, Helen. Good morning. Oh my God, this is so amazing. I'm so happy to see your beautiful face. Likewise. And so I've been delighting in reading your book that you sent to me. Thank you so much. Your amazing book, The Perfect Mix, Everything I Know About Leadership I Learned as a Bartender. And we're definitely going to get into that. There's so much to get into in the next hour. But I was just before this call, I was... My favorite chapter is uh, chapter six, by the way. You and the universe. Really? Yes. (laughs) Empathy, love your bar back. Well, it's chapter six and the introduction in the first chapter. I mean, I love the whole thing, but. Thank you. I just love, you know, it's interesting. I had an interview with April Uchitel, who's the CEO of Violet Gray, which is a beauty um, company and wildly successful you know, she talked about work culture and I was like, what's that? <laughs> Cause I've never, you know, worked in a business like that. I'm a, I'm a, mm-hmm. I'm a freelance mm-hmm. writer and I'm solo gig, you know? Yeah. So to learn really, I've been learning cause I've been talking to a lot of women entrepreneurs about work culture. And that is, I mean, so much of what you talk about in this book and I love <laughs> so much of it. There's so many, I love the anecdotal piece of it. I mean, but I love how you had that one woman, Pat, who, and I had a Pat in college because I was a bartender for a minute in Boston. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. And she, uh, cause I waited tables and I was like, oh, F this, I want to get behind the bar. And, uh, <laughs> this was in the nineties. And she said to me, I remember her name was Gwen. She had fiery red curly hair. She was beautiful and funny and sassy. And she had big assets as you mm-hmm. call them in the book. Her <laughs> boobs were big. And she said, honey, honey, you got to wear a money shirt. You got to wear a money (laughs) shirt. I was like, what's a money shirt? And she took her boobs with both hands. She was like, money, money. And I was like, oh, okay, I get it. And there was no shame about it. There was no like, it was just like, this is part of the deal, you know? It's your uniform. Yes. (laughs) See, but I don't have assets to put in a money shirt. (laughs) So I had to find another way. You have other assets. uh, Right. To attract people to the bar and keep them there for as long as I could. Yeah. 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 But but, so Gina was one of the characters that had the assets who was the kind of flaky actress character that used her assets, I'm air quoting, to lure men in, which is, you know, that's tale as old as time. But Pat was the bartender that basically showed you the ropes. And I love that. And that's kind of the basis for the whole podcast of moms I'd like to follow. Like I've learned everything I know from other women, a a lot more than men. I mean, I I don't have a thing against men. Men are fine, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) like it's the women in my life who have really showed me how it's done. Oh, how interesting. Yeah, yeah. She, Joni was, Pat was an interesting person. I just said Joni because that was her real name. And <laughs> it. Like, it was 30 anyone. years ago. It would have been fine. But anyway, um, but she had five children and she was a single mom. 
also. Wow, even more interesting. Yeah, you would never know it because she, to look at her, so that we're talking now about late 70s. So she really did have the blonde helmet hair and the blue eyeshadow and the big lashes and the beautiful skin. And she didn't wear a money shirt, probably because she had five kids, right? Um, but she always was immaculate and tailored. Yes. And her hands, I don't know how she did this, were always beautiful. And I guess she saw in me this this younger girl really being abused by these older waitresses who knew I was going to come and go for the summer and that they were born there and would die there, you know, that that was their life, that they could make me do all the crap. Um, she, she took a motherly, in a way, pity on me and yeah. was nice. That's all she had to do was be nice. Yeah. And yeah. then when she saw that I was really interested in her and what she did and that I got what was going on, I don't know if she ever experienced that kind of A, appreciation and B, adoration before because I was, I was in love. The minute I saw that Pat could just put a glass and a napkin in front of somebody and get a dollar and yeah. I had to carry five different levels <laughs> of food to someone for that dollar and she was clean and smiling. I I got there was something there. And I don't think she ever worked with someone who so quickly understood that. And and she was she was magnificent. She really taught me not just about how to cut a perfect, you know, lemon wedge, but really how to manage people in a different way because there's this balance, as you know, as a bartender, as a parent, as as yes. a worker in the world, as anybody in a culture. And it's funny, culture is made up of how people relate. And my next thing I'm really writing about is relationships at work. But she she understood that that beautiful interplay between friendly and professional. Yeah. Like she knew where the line was. And I find that line, even to this day, sometimes really squishy. It's hard to identify where the professionalism and the coworker ends and, and the friend begins where being the mom um, and the friend, those are really two distinct roles. And as your child gets older, you know, my Zoe is now 33 you're always mom, but you get to be more of the friend. But there's an age where that line is really important. And she taught me that. And that that was amazing. Just oh, I was so fortunate to find her. That's so awesome. And I love how you write about it and describe it. And you're such an amazing writer. Oh, thank really. you. Really? I mean, it's, it's it took 12 it's, years to say it that simply. <laughs> you know, right? I'm, I'm a professor. That's what it takes. So I, I've been taught how to not write. So oh, I had to yes. go back to my early roots from high school, and I had the blessing of being uh, in Frank McCourt's English class of Frank McCourt of Angela's Ashes. What? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, my That's God. incredible. Talk about the most, someone who literally blew my hair back, and um, I wiggled my way into his class for three years in a row, and, and he had me wanting that writing thing yes. and then academia and also being a consultant and writing reports for companies kind of beat it out of me. So yeah. it took a while. So I really thank you and the three editors who worked hard with me. <laughs> um, who don't rewrite anything for you, it turns out. They just say, you know, there's a better way to say that. And they don't do it for you. Um, I, I appreciate them and thank you. Yes. 
Um, I've had to become also a, sort of a, a pseudo sound engineer because <laughs> I've that. learned trial and error and I have the sweetest, most humble, helpful editor I could ever wish for. And he's so kindly will email me and be like, so episode such and such, this happened, this happened. And he explains it and he's just so <laughs> kind about it. And it you know, there's no condescending tone. It's just like genuine helpfulness. Like what exactly what you're talking about? Being a human. Yeah. Connecting. And like, he genuinely wants to help me make the best product I can for my listeners. See, and that's why you like chapter six, because that's about empathy. Yes. And if we could care about each other and look at each other's people and know that, you know, our lives are filled with so much information and it's so hard for us to process everything. So we make these little mental maps and we, we put people in boxes because it's just easier for us to manage. And when we do that, sometimes we forget that they're also people with a story. Yes. And when we remember that everybody has a story and everyone's a human and we can care about that, then we could just relate to each other in such different ways. So your, your sound guy knows that you are many things, but you're not a sound guy. Yeah. And he can respect that and talk to you that way. And I, I love that. So I'm so grateful. I mean, my whole team, I feel just so grateful. I could never do this whole thing without them. And if I did, it would just look way different uh, and a lot less professional. Exactly. You love your your support staff. You know, we can only be as good as we are because the people around us are as good as they are. We couldn't do it by ourselves. Well, and there's a line in the book, and I don't know if it's in that chapter. I think it is in that chapter where you say, I could only be as good as the support behind me. I'm paraphrasing. And that's, I mean, 100% in every sense, not just professionally, but family, who we surround ourselves with friendship-wise, the energy that we put ourselves around in our hobbies and things that we participate in. I mean, all of that affects how we view ourselves and the world and ourselves in the world, right? And how we impact that world too. So my daughter is, has to, she's a third grade teacher, God bless her. And she's in a team and she said, and she knows I've done a lot of consulting and team building. And she said, how do you build a good team? And I said, well, you want to find people who have skills that you don't have because you should all complement each other. You don't want people who are good at what you're good at. You want the people who are there who can fill in what you're not good at. And you always want some people who are smarter than you because then you keep learning and then everybody's skills come together to create something big instead of creating competition. Yeah. So that's how we get to do what we do. We surround ourselves with the right combination of people and ability and heart and soul. And you need someone who's always going to question you know, you need that devil's advocate, but you also need the person who really can read the room well and and cool things off. And you always need someone who's better at technology than you. I've learned that. <laughs> oh my God, definitely. I, I just, yeah, I need IT people. And all of my people are IT people. And they laugh, like it's an ongoing joke. Even this thing with Squadcast we had this morning, it's like, oh, Jen's, you know, got an issue again <laughs> with Squadcast. But the Squadcast people, I'm just going to plug Squadcast for a second. They are always so, their customer service is impeccable. They always come right back with a chat. Um, I had an issue last week. I had to reschedule. Um, probably something similar was happening, maybe on her end with the Chrome issue or mm-hmm. something. But um, 
they said, we're so sorry. We'll take care of you. Let's, we'll schedule a, a phone call with Tiffany, the woman I'm going to be interviewing tomorrow, 15 minutes before you guys are supposed to log on and we'll walk her through it. That's incredible customer service. And I feel so taken care of and supported. But isn't that the way it should be? It Why is, so but Helen, I know because we have mega companies in our our world that won't even put a human on the phone with you anymore. So I I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. Too. So Zach from Squadcast, shout out to you, thank you. And um, so Helen, oh my gosh, there's so much to cover. I we, we can't possibly get through all of it, which is why I am going to come visit you in New York. And we're going to spend the weekend together. I would love that. And we got to go see some Broadway shows. I haven't been to see a show in two years, and I'm itching. It's been too I would, long. I would break out in a rash if that happened. <laughs> it's just, yeah, I, I miss it. I miss it. So um, where were you born? I was born in Bronx Hospital, but actually grew up kind of on Delancey Street, the Lower East Side of New York City, in a neighborhood that now I can't even afford to live in. <laughs> Isn't that the way? Oh, my yeah. God. But then it was this teeming melting pot of... Jews and Italians and Asians and and Latins and African Americans and anybody else who was falling into the islands of Manhattan Ugh. and getting stuck in the southern tip of it for a while while they yeah. were going to figure out where to go next. And it was really quite, when I think back at it, I mean, it, it was dangerous at times, certainly, and challenging. But when everybody doesn't have anything, nobody knows that they don't have anything. Right. But it was pretty remarkable how somehow we all still, most of us, um, found a way to make it work and, and yeah. get along and share the basketball court and, and move forward. So it was, it was really, it was a pretty incredible experience. Growing up in New York City in the 60s um, and early 70s, when you could still get on the subway and ride all the yeah. way up to Yankee Stadium and afford a a ticket at Yankee Stadium and a hot dog and you know now you have to mortgage your house to do that. Um, we we or could just go to a museum or pay two dollars and stand through the ballet, you know, standing room for kids. I mean, it was really for people who maybe did were not considered well off or you know we were working class. I would say um, there was still everything there for us if we just accessed it. And, and that was my parents' plan. My my mom is from Spanish Harlem originally, and my dad grew up in upstate New York. And he found his um, childhood so limited that even though, you know, we, we couldn't live in a great, a, the best place, if you will, he wanted us in a place where we'd have access to great schools and to culture. And, and I guess it worked. So that's awesome. I love that. And I mean, that just for me brings up this fear <laughs> because my son is almost 10 and we live in LA and LA is, is very insular. I mean, it's, you're in your car or you're in your home. Uh, I mean, that's basically, and he has anxiety, so he doesn't like to leave the house a lot. And we have way too many electronic devices. You know, it's, really hard to get him to to go out and do stuff but then when he does he loves it like his dad he and his dad went um by by chance there was a the i think it was the american ballet theater just did the a version of cinderella that was set in world war ii oh wow yeah at the amundsen downtown and a friend of ours she and her son were going to go but her son was sick and she called and said 
do you want the tickets? I know Bloomsy, my son is obsessed with World War II and history. He's a history buff. Mm-hmm. And he, I said, yes, they will go. They will go. Cause his dad is great like that. He'll just take him and like take him to places. He's adventurous. And so they went and of course he had the best time ever, but he was That's just fantastic. bitching about, I don't want to go to the ballet, you know? And then as soon as he was there, he was like, oh, this is so amazing. Like, you know, and it was just beautifully done. And I just, I wish for more of that. I'm hoping as he gets older, he will be into more of that. Well, I say bring him with you to New York and we'll, we'll throw him right into the pool so he could learn how to swim and take him to a couple of shows. And yes. Riveted. Yes, absolutely. So you grew up with all this amazing culture around you. And did you have brothers and sisters? Oh, so I have a brother, Russell. He is my best friend in the world. The writer. The writer writer. and the the former, uh, yes, the former TV exec who always only wanted to write who's now writing. Can I do, am I allowed to do a plug? Of course. So the show that he is now, first time I ever saw it in my life was Monday and I have no voice because I scream so loud. Um, but he's the co-exec uh, producer on a show called Nightfall, which is about the Knights of Templar. Your son might like it on the History Channel on Monday nights at 10 o'clock. Ooh. Maybe 9 o'clock out your way, but I think it's 10 o'clock everywhere. Okay, Nightfall. Well, uh, Kevin Hunker, our amazing show notes writer, who introduced me and Helen, um, uh, is going to be doing the show notes. So he'll include a link to that TV show. Oh, that'd be great. Thanks. Yeah. Um, yeah. He'll include all those links, the link to your book, the link to all the things. Fantastic. Thank you. Kevin's, Kevin's really great that way. Can I just tell people he, he was a student of mine who was really, really kind to my elderly mother. And for any of you who think that the youth of today doesn't get it, I want to tell you that the young people, they're very different. I'm a baby boomer. They're very different than us, and that's good. And there's nothing to worry about because they they have heart and they do know what matters. They do. Can you, can you tell the story? Oh, I want to actually hear I the story. It's so sweet. Yeah, right? it's, such, okay? it's so right. worthy. Yeah. So Kevin Hunker was part of a group of boys that really – met in college, fell in love with each other, and they were inseparable. And somehow three of them weaseled their way. It was Kevin, Jake, and Gabe into my class. And I'm the hard one. So I had some of them struggled and some of them did well. And and we all became very close. And I had this rule that if you touched your phone or if I heard your phone while you were in my classroom, I would stop everything. And you on speakerphone had to call my mother, Frida, who she's gone now, but then she was in her late 80s. And picture Seinfeld's mother times 5 million. <laughs> she could give you the business. And and Kevin did something and his phone rang and he had to call Frida. And they fell in love with Frida and they would do things so they could call Frida. And then it would be someone's birthday and they'd call Frida and she'd sing them happy birthday. And this is, I'm teaching business strategy. This is a very heavy duty analytics class. And, and that semester, my dad passed away and right around Thanksgiving. And as soon as the semester was over, when young men who are seniors in college would start drinking and not stop till they fall down. <laughs> Kevin and and Gabe and Jake and a couple of others piled into a car, drove to the assisted living home where my mother was living an hour away from campus, closer to where I live, and they spent the day with Frida at the home. 
And I'm teary-eyed telling you this. I'll never, ever forget that. So then I did something really wonderful and dopey. So then I was so taken with them that not only did I then make a barbecue for them when they graduated at my home and my mother came and they all got to love it up. And I have fabulous pictures from that. But I decided to write a letter to their parents about who their children are. So imagine that you're a parent. However, check this one out. And you, you get this letter and it's first addressed to, to the parents of Kevin Hunger. Right, you're you're thinking you're freaking out. <laughs> They're like, oh my God, what did my kid do this time? <laughs> right. And then they open it up though. And and I wrote them this letter to tell them what their child did that was so kind. And I I closed it with a phrase from a poem by um Kyle Gebron uh about being a parent. And I I told them, You are the stable bow from which the arrow flies. Mm. And so they're crying hysterically, and then they call their kid crying. <laughs> I got this letter from the college, and and their kids like, oh my god, what did we do? <laughs> but it was really so. I I'm here to just tell all of our listeners that our kids are really okay. They're different, and they should be. Yeah. But if you give them the love and you you raise them with respect and honor. They will show it in ways you could never imagine. So, yeah. and empathy, and empathy. empathy. Wow, what love! Yeah. Not only love that they had for an elderly person who you know just lost their spouse and was living in an assisted living home and all of that, but what love they had for me, their teacher, to give me that kind of honor where they would take time out of their day and travel fifty miles each yeah. way. Which is a huge reflection that. of you. After they got their grades. It <laughs> yeah. wasn't even like they yeah. were, you know, it's, it's a reflection of the whole system of what can mm. happen. If I show them that I care about whether they learn, I'm not going to care more than they care about it, mm. but I care about what they want to achieve. Mm. And if they then can give back the care and say thank you by doing something as human as that, you know, things get rocky out there, but we're really in good hands. Yeah. That's my, yeah. I love that story. Thank you for sharing it. I'm so glad we- Thank we, you for asking. Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's so good. Okay. So you grew up in New York City in the 70s. Then how did you, I mean, we're going to gloss over like so many things. I, like we could, I, I could stop at the basketball story where you got <laughs> elbowed by the guys and then you- Basically, and you guys will get the book and read it, but Helen had to work her way onto the basketball field. I mean, the basketball field, the basketball court. I'm not a sports person, obviously. It's okay, but it's, it's fine. The field is, is perfectly acceptable. I thank you for being so generous. It's and, fine. It wasn't a stage. You didn't say the basketball stage. Right, true. I could have done that, though. That, that would be very me to do that. In a very male, uh, you know, boy-dominated uh culture of the basketball, like the, the New York city basketball court culture. And you continued to have to do that. You know, it sounds like through the forever. Yeah. A girl, (laughs) a woman in a man's, a man's field, which I've been my whole life. Yeah. have to do that every day. Yeah. So you graduated high school, went to college, got two master's degrees. Is that two masters and a dual PhD? A lot of letters. Because again, I was a woman in a man's world and 
we had to do that. The, the dual masters was like, so let, let me just clue people in for a minute. Getting a, a PhD is, has nothing to do with intelligence. I stupidly thought it would be the Dead Poets Society and we read books and we talk about ideas. It's about persistence and humility. And that was before I had my 10 years of therapy and I didn't know if I'd really ever be able to finish getting through those processes. Um, so I kind of got the two masters along the way just in case I couldn't finish, although I never haven't finished anything I've ever started, even a bad book. Um, <laughs> Me too. I can't. I have to. I'm so dedicated. I'm like, I I to, I'm in this. It's got to. Yeah, I'm the same way. And I'm hopeful that maybe if I just hold on long enough, it'll I'll, it'll find me. I'll be surprised. And once in a while you are, and sometimes you're not. But um, to be a strategist in the late 80s, and strategy was a new field, um, to be one of the first classes of women to graduate with a PhD in that area. And I also degreed in behavioral science, so I'm dual PhD because I felt I could be a great planner, but if I don't know how to get people to want to implement the plan, it doesn't matter. I was told by the, the male faculty that I was crazy, no one would ever hire me. I had to choose one. But but I did need to have a lot more credential. And I will tell you, and I, I think I mentioned this in the book, that I would I would get this work and I would bill myself as H.N. Rothberg as opposed to Helen. And I'd show up. And in those days, we really had to be very much like the men. So we had these Norma Kamali suits with these shoulder pads that made us look like football players. And we'd come walking in in our very high heels so we could look eye to eye with them and our big shoulder pads and our briefcase and had my hair tied back. And I was still pretty young. And I'd put my hand out, give him a strong handshake <laughs> from the Lori side and say, you know, Helen Rothberg, nice to meet you. And they would look at me and say, well, when will Dr. Rothberg get here? They they assumed I was the support person. <laughs> Never heard a word like like the think about the peanuts um, cartoon. Wah, wah, wah. Whatever came out of my mouth wasn't language because they were waiting for the real person. And you know you had to not only need the extra lettering, if you will, to get in the door, but you also have to find a way to make them feel okay with being there. Because as much as it was hard for us, it was also kind of weird for for the men too. They didn't really know how to behave. Mm. Not all of them. I've been very fortunate. I have my hashtag me too stories like everybody, but I've also been very fortunate to have a couple of men in my life professionally who have mentored me and, and kind of opened some doors and were gracious and lovely. But, you know, there weren't a lot of those around. So, and there were no women at all. And how did you segue from that? And all the while, by the way, uh, listeners, Helen was bartending yes. all through school. That's how she paid for her school. That's how she paid for her life. Um, and, and that's a great deal peppered. Well, I mean, it's the basis for the book, but, um, it's amazing to watch you thread in and out of this corporate world and then <laughs> back to the bartending, but that's, you know, that's it. That's what we have to do no matter what we're pursuing really, especially if it, but so how did you segue into teaching? It's a little bit of a crazy story. I so like crazy I, stories. Okay, so it, <laughs> I have to go back a while. So yeah. in third grade, the New York City, I told, I warned you, the New York City public school system went on strike. Ah. And by the third week of my brother and I not being in school, my father had had it and he marched over to some little yeshiva, which is a, a Jewish religious school 
um, on the Lower East Side. I'm saying tiny. I had 11 kids in my graduating class. Wow. And fought with the rabbi for probably six hours. And the next thing I knew, Russell and I were going to school there. And probably wound up being one of the best moves, not for the religious stuff at all, but I would say sixth, seventh, eighth grade, I had one of the most remarkable teachers I've ever had in my life. Her name was Ethel Marks, and she gave us homework in the summer, but her homework was we had to read O. Henry and Steinbeck and 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 write these book reports and et cetera. But my first teaching experience came in the eighth grade. The second grade teacher um, for the secular studies didn't come in, and she handed me the book of whatever the teaching plan was for the day. And she said, okay, you, you're going to teach the second graders Oh my God. It's like, okay, I'm a second grade teacher today. And I did it and I really liked it. And that, and being a camp counselor in the summers and having 20, 10 year old girls. And back then they were still 10 at 10 years old. Right. um, Where they were old enough to like do whatever you threw at them, but young enough to not have a nasty mouth yet. I just, I just loved it, and I got hooked on, on this thing that happens when you're teaching somebody how to do something, or, or you're, which really means you're teaching them something about themselves and what they're capable of, and this like little sparkle light fairy thing happens in their eyes when they get it, mm. and for me, it was narcotic. I, I loved that. I thought it was incredible, and. As I went through graduate school, you know, there was always this dynamic balance between, am I going to go into consulting and you could make some really big money and it's really cool, or am I going to try to be an academic? I was asked to cover a class when I was still a doctoral candidate for a student who was much farther along than I. She was taking her comprehensive exam. She was already teaching as an adjunct professor at Iona College, and she said, you want to cover a week's worth of classes for me? oh my God, now I'm going to go up and teach college. I mean, I was only a few years older than these people. You know, I'm their bartender more than their teacher. But I went in there and I did it and I found that I could relate and I could do it. And I was nervous because I wasn't that much older than everybody, but it worked. And then I got an adjuncting job at Polytechnic Institute in Long Island, that. So I was teaching organizational behavior to engineers from Grumman and Fairchild who could be my dad. And the first class was there, I saw them looking at me and they're saying, like, I have neckties older than you, you know, like, what do I, (laughs) and they're engineers and I'm teaching squishy things. And, and I realized, okay, how do I speak their language? I learned this at the bar. How do yeah. I speak their language? How do you connect with people? Because I, I had, you know, I had people sometimes at the bar who didn't even speak English and I had to learn how to connect with them. So, so I, I bought some Lincoln logs and, and I turned every, and I bought uh, Legos. I'm not kidding. And I turned every lesson into a systems diagram. So I knew that I could do that. And then I would have them physically build and do things and manipulate situations so they can experience what I mean by teamwork or perception or communication and and learn that, oh my God, there's so many ways that you connect with people. And I, I fell in love with it. I never left. 35 years later, I'm still, I'm an academic and I'm s- still part-time consultant, part-time writer, still bartending for the people I love. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, what's funny is when I stopped bartending and I took my first full-time 
teaching position at William Patterson College in Wayne, New Jersey, it was a huge pay cut. I couldn't believe it. Interesting. Yes. It was very different, very different world. I don't know if I've ever caught up, but it's okay. Wow. Isn't that so interesting? Education is uh, worth less than alcohol in, in some way, right? Not really, not really worthless. I'm not wording that right, but yeah, we get we get paid less. If you think about even, <sighs> I think the crazy. most important person in a child's life, in addition to their parents, is their kindergarten and first grade teacher. Yes, because those two people are going to instill the love of learning or not. And if I were the queen, they would be the highest paid people in society. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it baffles my mind. And I think about my, I went to Montessori school, not kindergarten, but my Montessori school teachers, I still remember. And I remember my first and second grade teacher, uh, Mrs. Ryan. Yeah. That's, those are, I mean, I remember a lot of my teachers throughout and a lot of the, I had an English teacher that was like the one you talked about that, I mean, it wasn't Frank McCord, but <laughs> it was, yeah, Miss DeAntony. She really, she believed in my writing and she encouraged me and it was just through that gentle encouragement and also pushed me, pushed me to, to do sure. more because she knew I was capable of it. And, and that, that really was the foundation for my writing. I owe her a lot. That's a lucky. I mean, my grandmother used to say, if you reach for the stars, you might land on the moon. Mm. But if you stay where you're standing, you can only go down. Yeah. And that really stuck with me. And, you know, it's interesting about being a college professor is I'm getting young people at a time of their lives where they're, it's very confusing. I get them later. So they're graduating. So now they're scared. It's like, oh shit, I'm going to be leaving the bubble and I'm going to have to pay back my student loans and I'm going to have to get a job and I'm not going to be able to drink every Thursday night through Sunday. And, you know, and they come in as kids who are going to start becoming adults. And now they're sort of almost young adults and they face different kinds of challenges and they have a different relationship with their parents because they're trying to, as much as they love and are close to them, break from them. Yeah. Because that's what college is also about. It's about creating that that really independent being. Yeah. And so they turn to people such as myself for advice and help and and talk and, and turn to me for things that they couldn't go to their parents with. You know, I, um, I'm i blessed to have my Zoe, but Zoe's my stepdaughter. I got her when she was 19 and she's now 33, And but she's mine. Mm. And I didn't birth my own children along the way. I, I don't, I never really met the right person. And I had this real, I was going to adopt a baby from China at one point, And I went through quite a bit of the process until I realized that, well, I live, that was when I had left New York City and I was living up here where I live now in upstate New York that I'd have to take every consulting job in the world to have a nanny to for my, but then if the nanny is going to raise the kid, what am I doing? What am I doing? So I did what I always would do when I didn't know what to do. I would, I would take a big trip somewhere. So I took three weeks and I went to, um, Utah and I had Zion and Bryce and St. George's by myself on a vision quest about, you know, what that was really about for me. It was around my 40th birthday. And I realized that, you know what? I might not have birthed my own babies. I am sort of that support influence for a group of young people at an age when they really need someone they could turn to who's not their mom. Mm. So maybe that's what I was supposed to do. Maybe that's where, because if I did have my own children, I couldn't put as much energy and love and effort Mm. into all these other kids. I wouldn't have 
I wouldn't have it left, you know. And um, and they do become. I mean, some of them I, they bring their, they get married, they bring their babies to me. I, some of them weddings. They come. I have one coming for the weekend who's a former student of mine. I mean, they some of them really just stay in my lives in a very close way. But it's interesting how. You know, if we think about that book from years ago from Hillary Clinton about it takes a village to raise a child, it really does. And that kind of nurturing that young people need changes across their lifetime. And and some of them can't always get it from their mom and dad. Yeah. And shouldn't. From somewhere and shouldn't. Else. It actually has to come from a different yeah. source. And I, I feel very fortunate that I've been able, and maybe why, maybe that's why the chapter six on empathy is my favorite too, in a way, because. I'm a loving, giving person, and sometimes I have trouble with that line, where that line is between what's the right amount, what's the wrong amount, what's professional, what's not. But what I've discovered in my life is when you let people in and you let yourself be real and human, you're not perfect, you have feelings, there's so much you can do, there's so much help you can give, and sometimes you don't even know you're really doing it, just by being there for them. And there's something beautiful about that. So that that's part of the whole being a professor thing for me as well. You know, when I left bartending, I was really afraid because at being a bartender, you're you're on stage in a certain way. And people come there, either they fall in because they fall in. But if you have a smaller place as I had um, at Cincinnati's and, and the Maryland Crab House and you you create this community of people. I, I learned right away that I couldn't be there in the way everybody wanted me to be there for them. So if I get people to be there for each other, if I could help build a community at the bar, my life is going to be a lot better. And I bring people together and now they don't have to eat dinner alone and they're making friends. And when there's time, we talk about their problems or we talk about sports or we listen to whatever it is we all do together in that community. I'm still getting a lot of attention and I'm still getting a lot of love in a certain way. And I was a little afraid of what happens when I don't have that in my life anymore. Never understanding that it was going to be there just in a different way. And now as I I approach my, my sixth decade, um, I know I still have a lot to give and I know there's a next for me. And I know at some point, you know, in that next decade, that won't be there anymore. So I'm not afraid anymore of what what I won't have because I know that if I'm out there willing, and this is really my mission to help people become the best they can be, or in in my personal language, if I keep helping people find the magnificence in themselves, I'm always gonna I'm always gonna have that kind of contact. So, you know, that's the whole shape shifting and change thing. We're always the same but different. And we have to trust that we are who we are and and that's gonna be good. And we'll figure out how to make it work. Yeah. I love that. Sorry, that was a long answer to your No, that's what this is for. You're doing, you're great. You're perfect. So I want to talk about your journey to being a mom because it's such a beautiful journey and it's such a beautiful connection and story between you and your stepdaughter. But I can't remember because we spoke briefly on the phone. Were you married before? Well, I was married for a brief time, but, but never had children and husband number one didn't have children. Um, husband number two, Alex, my forever husband. See, everything is a long story. I'm sorry. I'm no, no, that's what this is for. So, Take your time. There's I first no met rush. Alex when I was 15 and he was 18 and we fell in love and he was my first boyfriend and my first love. And we promised ourselves to each other. And, and then 
when I started college, Alex went off to medical school in Romania, which is where he had come from. And I dated and he came back and dumped me. Um, and he got married to someone and had four children. Wait, and, what do you mean you dated? You know, he was in Romania. So I went out with people. I, and he you know, dumped you because you dated? Yes. Got it. He came back and dumped me because I was, I promised myself to him and he was in Romania becoming a doctor and building a life for us. And, you know, I was here. And um, so 28 years later, I have a dream about him out of nowhere. And I wake up and I could swear I could feel his breath on my skin. And I said, okay, I'll find Alex. I've learned to follow the signs. And I get online and I see he's a physician in Geneva, New York, about four hours from here. And I write him a letter on this beautiful lavender paper with rose petals and apologize for the past and hoping he's had a wonderful life and, and put my phone number in there. And he calls me and has a fight with me the first day, <laughs> but calls me every day. And we were married within the year and that was 15 years ago. And Zoe, um, is his daughter. Um, her name was Sarah then. She changed it later. And we got Zoe when she was 19. When we got married, Alex's first marriage was not a healthy one. And his former wife kind of took the kids from him. So Zoe hadn't seen her dad in six years. We got her. She wound up coming to us. Um, and she was 19. And she was very unhappy and not very healthy. And kind of liked me and hated me because she was still that little girl waiting for dad to come home from the hospital. Um, you know, and now here I was someone she really liked, but was going to get in the way or maybe not get in the way. And I was really the referee between the two of them for a very long time because they didn't know how to be with each other. And at one point, um, Zoe decided she was going to go back to Israel and leave us. And I knew she just was lost. And she said, well, what happens if Israel doesn't work out for me? I said, well, you come back and you'll go to Marist. What if I don't get in? I said, you'll go to Marist. And what I knew about her was, yes, yeah, she had a, maybe a D average in high school, but her SATs were really good. And I knew she was smart. I just knew she was afraid and untapped. And I also knew that I had formed a very strong community at Marist. I am more than just a professor there. I do anything admissions or advancement or any other group on campus asks me to do, whether it's run workshops for their students or lecture or talk to parents or, you know. So I, I knew I had markers. And I, I went to one of my people and said, my stepdaughter's coming here and she's gonna live on campus and she doesn't have the grades but she's smart enough and we need to help her and she's going to come here. And the kind of school we are, they said, yeah, we get it. Okay. So she came to Marist. She found herself. She was still battling with me quite a bit. I understood it. It was hard. I have to tell you, but what's so strange is maybe all of my training my whole life was to be ready for Zoe when I got her because I don't really know what to do with a six or an eight or a 10 year old, but 18 to 24, I could tell you there's nobody who knows them better than me. I've dedicated my life to 18 to 24. So in a way, 
I understood it from the outside, not just from the heart side. And she graduated and she did very well. And then she went to Israel to get a master's and she decided to make Aliyah, right of return and became a citizen. And she came home for a visit one day. And this is the turning point in, in our relationship together. And so she's 24, 25 at this she's time? She's probably 23, <clears throat> yeah, okay. 24 here. And so you guys have been home. on this road for four or five years already together. I mean, just at this point in the story. Already for four or five years. Okay. And she was doing something on my computer, I don't know what, and I was out and I came back. And my computer is my life. I'm a writer. I'm also an academic, so I have to. I do a lot of academic things. I, I write a little bit for money. I write books. I write for my clients. I do work with my clients. My whole life is on my computer. And of course, being the Luddite that I am, and there was no cloud then, I had not really backed everything up nicely. And um, I come home and she tells me she doesn't know what happened, but my screen, my computer is now a blue screen. And so what do you do? You know, uh, there were so many, if you could read all the bubbles over my head, I can only imagine what they would say, but I just looked at her and I said, okay, okay. She was, she had become Zoe by them. Okay, Zoe, have, have you just done the worst thing possibly you could have ever done to me? And she said, yeah, she was ready. She was ready for the fight. She was ready to get beaten literally physically and screamed at and you know i said i said okay well there's nothing we could do about it now so you'll take the computer to best buy make sure it's clean have it rebooted and it's now yours i'll get a new one but let's go for a walk and now she knows she's really going to get it right and so we're walking i said zoe did i yell at you no did i call you names? No. Did I call you stupid? No. Did I hit you? No. Did I banish you from the house? No. I said, do you now believe you have a home? Mm. And we didn't say another word and we just walked for a few miles, came home. And the next day she said, can we go for a walk? I was still Helen then. I said, sure. And she said, can I call you mom? Mm. And I said, sure. And you can see I'm a little mm. scary. Of course. And I am too. Yeah. And so when she went back to Israel and finished making Aliyah on her new passport, Helen Rothberg is her mom. Ugh, I mean. So she's mine. What a journey to motherhood. Yeah. What a yeah. journey to motherhood. What an earned, <laughs> I mean, every mom earns it in a different way. I'm not, but I'm just saying that is such a beautiful, amazing, authentic, deliberate journey to being Zoe's mom. I, I, it just, is. I love and, it. And I, I can't say to you as a mom who's birthed, carried a baby in her womb and watched it come out of her body and birthed it and grew with it. I can't say to you that I have that same connection because I don't know what that is. But I can say to you that even a stepmom's heart can break when her kid hurts. And feels incredible joy when her child feels joy and can only be as happy as she is, right? There's a phrase that you can only be as happy as your least happy child, um, that, that there could be a bond there too that's so strong where I would, I would do anything to help my child, protect my child. And, and like on the basketball courts when I was a kid, you know, beat the crap anybody who hurts my child <laughs> yeah 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 um, and could only wish for her you know peace and a happy life so 
it's different and it's possible. Yeah. And so important. And that's why I'm, I'm just, I mean, one of the main reasons, I mean, I fell in love with you the moment we spoke a couple weeks ago and I love this story so much. I love your story. And it's so important to talk about this story as a path to motherhood because there is no one path to motherhood. There's so many multiple paths to motherhood. And yeah, I just, I really appreciate you coming on the show and talking about it. It's just so, I can't wait to meet Zoe one day. Yeah, she's really fun. And you know, and motherhood, if I could just share another story I got from one of my students, motherhood is so many different things. And um, I, I had this one student, he was a lacrosse player and he would come see me a lot and I'd work with him a lot. And he was getting really nervous and about this big presentation I make them do. And I, I asked Miss Matt, you know, fill me in on, on, on the source of the anxiety for so many of you about this. And he said, well, you're kind of like our coach and you're kind of like our mom. You're like our coach because you've taught us everything in this skill and you want us to go out there and win. But you're like our mom now because we don't want to let you down. And so love and nurturing and helping people grow is, is probably, if we, if we wanted to look at motherhood as the biggest construct we could, if motherhood is about growing life and growing people, then it, it, it comes from a lot of different places in a lot of different ways. I mean, I don't have to, you know, pay for their braces in their college, and that's kind of <laughs> nice. But, um, but, you know, you do, if there's care and nurturing, it, there's a little, little ingredient of that. And almost a lot of things. That I love it. And I, one of the things I love that you said, I just have to repeat it, that you said everything you had done in your life up to that point had prepared you for Zoe. Mm -hmm. That is incredible. I mean, and, and I'm sure there were many, many days and probably years where you felt unprepared and yet you still had this. I still feel coterie. Of, yeah, of course. But yes, but, but I also had faith and I'll tell you why because I knew the age group so well. I had seen so many people her age, you know, go through so many, you know, when you are close to your students, so the college I teach at Marist College in Poughkeepsie, New York, um, we're small. You know, we have 5,000 students, maybe six, but our classrooms, you can't put more than 30 in a room ever. Mm. And every kid gets at least one academic advisor. And if you're an athlete, you have two. And if you're special needs, you have three, you know, so we really get to know them in a different way. So, you know, I've gone through some tough things with some of my students along the way. And I had the faith in their resilience to bounce. And I prayed a lot. <laughs> And I did a lot of yoga. Yeah. And I still do a lot of yoga. <laughs> and I climbed a lot of mountains. And I fought a lot with my husband because he, you know, he has a very different experience and he his life experience and how he was raised and, and he's a physician, so he's he's used to telling people what to do and they do it sometimes. Um, <laughs> and he still carried the pain of not being in her life earlier. So it's hard, but I, I did. I always believed. I do. I, I'm a little weird this way, but if you want it to work out well, whatever the it is, and you are willing to work really, really hard and believe, 
it will happen. Maybe not in your time. Maybe not in, I always call it Rothberg time, which is <laughs> in two minutes. Um, it will get there. And what if I wanted Zoe to get there in the first year so she wouldn't have to go through as many, much pain as she did across the years of, for many different reasons? Of course. But I knew the world has to unfold as it does. And if we could be the steady bow from which the arrow flies, that they'll get there in their way. It's hard. It's, it's so really hard. hard. Yeah. It's so hard. But it, yeah. It's not like a client where you tell them what to do and they don't listen, right? right? Then you could decide, okay, I'm not working for you anymore. Yes. You tell a kid something, they don't listen. You can't say, okay, I'm not your mom anymore. You can't, it doesn't, you know, the controls are very different and that's hard too, that you don't have as much control. Yes. Yeah. Helen, we have come to the time in the interview uh, when I ask you three questions I ask every guest, and then we go into a lightning round of fun, silly questions. Okay. So the first question is, what do you think about Helen when you hear the word MILF? Oh, no. <laughs> I... um. Yeah. Um, I never saw myself that way. So I always think it's somebody else. That's not me. I'm, and who I'm, is yeah. it? MILF? Yeah. Or Helen? Who's MILF? MILF Who's, is, who is MILF? Who's the somebody else that you think of? You are Jessica Rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me just assure you and tell you, I mean, I don't know if you're going to like this. <laughs> But you, Helen, are a MILF because you are a mom I would like to follow and I admire and respect you so much. You're so fun. Thank you. And I have to say it's, um, I think I've made it through my life with honest, honestly being very humble, except for when you say no to me and then I'm going <laughs> to die or saying I can't. It's going to be like, F you, babe. <laughs> F you, babe. I'm going to die doing it. So I'm just a girl in the world. That's how I see it. And so I really, it's weird. I don't look at myself that way. And yeah. And, and to be honest with you, my mom, the second, the first book is thanks mom. The second book about relationship that is first book was thanks dad. Second book is thanks mom. Cause it's about relationships. She taught me how to relate to people in a very specific way, but I really, I really didn't have a lot of women role models in my life ever other than pat and pat um, pat was a milf she was a milf pat okay, was a milf. Pat the milf pat she's the perfect example okay pat is the milf thank you <laughs> what is something you've changed your mind about recently eating ice cream at 11 o'clock at night <laughs> yes and i hope it's <laughs> i hope it's that it's totally healthy and wonderful is yes. that how you okay good yes i never would have done it before. Oh, that's but the best time to I eat it. Have, you know, I've learned that I've decided that you can have anything you want in life as long as you don't have too much of it. So I won't bring like a container in with me. <laughs> I'll take a pretty teacup and put some teaspoons in yeah. anytime I want. Yeah. You know, I let myself eat ice cream. Good. What's your favorite flavor? It depends on the time of day. I love a really good coffee ice cream, but it keeps me up at night. Right. So at nighttime, what do you reach for? At nighttime, I like a really just good, simple vanilla, but it would be great if it had peanut butter in it. Ooh. Anything with peanut butter is also Ooh. perfectly okay. Yum. Okay. Yeah. How do you define success? Being at peace with yourself. Hmm. Lightning round of questions. 
I'm ready. Ocean or desert? Ocean. Favorite junk food? Corn chips. Movies or Broadway show? Broadway show. Texting or talking? Talking. Cat person or dog person? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever worn a unitard? Yes. (laughs) I grew up in the 70s. Come on, that wasn't fair. Well, we all have. That's the thing. Everybody has. There's only a few women that have been like, wait, what's a unitard? We all have. And then, then I would explain it and they'd go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wore it. I wore it. Shower or bathtub? Bathtub. Ice cream or chocolate? Ice cream. On a scale of one to 10, how good are you at ping pong? Seven. What is your biggest pet peeve? People who text in a busy airport in the middle of the walkway. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> so specific. I love it. They stop right in the middle. There's a gazillion people coming and going. Come on, people. <laughs> oh, man. If you could push a button and it would make everyone in the world 7% happier, but it would also place a worldwide ban on all hairstyling products, would you push it? Yes. You're talking to a girl who doesn't own a comb. <laughs> I don't either. I never do my hair, which is why I recently Ever. cut it short and it's just heaven. I literally never touch it. Not, I mean, I do use some products sometimes, but um, it's rare. Uh, superpower choice. Invisibility, ability to fly, or super strength? Invisibility. Mm. Would you rather have six fingers on both hands or... A belly button that looks like foreskin. Six fingers on both hands. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> no contest. What was the name of your first pet? Maxie. What was the name of the street you grew up on? Grand. So were you to be uh, an entertainer of the um, striptease variety or uh, of the sensual films variety? <laughs> Your name, your stage name would be Maxie Grand. Love that. I mean, that she is like an old-timey uh, Hollywood star. Maxie Grand. I always said that I, I loved the 1940s B-movies. I loved how the women dressed and the hair yes. and, that, you know, I love That's that. That's Maxie Grand comes from that. I love that. Yes. Helen, yeah. you are a treasure and a treat, and I just Likewise. adore you. Likewise. Thank you for this opportunity to... To meet a woman like you who's so smart and so approachable and accessible and fun. Thank um, you. And thank you very much. I'm, I'm grateful. Such a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening, guys. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Helen. Tune in next week when I have Emily Ziff Griffin on the show, author of Light Years. Emily and I sat down in her Glendale home to talk about artistry, motherhood, and writing. I'll talk to you then. Thanks so much for listening. I love you guys. Keep going. Bye.